Another thing that happened while I was out was I had to take an emergency trip to the dentist. Like I said, just a lot of fun, man. We had a lot of fun. Good time off, break. Just a vacation, you know. Had to take a trip to the dentist uh, because I had a dental emergency on three separate occasions in a matter of seven days. Uh, three different pieces of one of my molars just started falling out. And um, I would be eating food, not even hard food, like a hot dog. And then all of a sudden I'd take a hard bite and like that didn't have any gift. And then I'd work its way out and it would be white and I'd fill my tongue and there'd be something that wasn't there that was there before. And so that would be part of my tooth. And so I had to have a dental emergency and I drove to Columbus because uh, <coughs> we have a family friend there that does good work and he got me fixed up and it, I thought it was going to be a lot worse than it was and honestly I was bracing for a little bit of an extraction. But that's not what happened. I got there and he took a look at it and said, you know, it's not that bad. It's actually, we're going to be able to do it with just a big filling. And so they took care of that. A cavity had caused it all to fall out. And I thought that I was just dying, but I wasn't. And he got that taken care of for me. Uh, Which poses a question I wanted to ask to you. What are the most crucial commitments you need in a visit to the dentist? And your dentist or the person that you go to have dentist work done, what are the most crucial commitments that you need? There's a lot of commitments that we'd like to have, but what are the most core commitments that you need from person filling that role? Uh, maybe someone that accepts your insurance would be important. Yes? I'd say that'd be of utmost importance. That's vital. Another one that I would say would be vital is that they do good work. You only get one set of teeth, right? Well, two, but you only get one for permanence, right? But you only get this one set, and so if one breaks, you're just out of luck. They're going to put some artificial stuff in your mouth, which is what I got going on right now, and it's just fine. But I do wish I missed the smooth Caleb teeth. You know, those were so pretty and wonderful. I missed that a little bit. But it's important. I would say vital that the dentist does good work. One that is also important, but maybe not vital, is that they get you in quickly, get you on the schedule right away. That's important. Maybe not completely vital. Um, One of the things that maybe you like in your dentist is bedside manner. Do you ever notice that dentists love talking to you whenever their hands are in your mouth? I never understood that, but, you know, if that's important to you and you like to have a good conversation whenever their hands are in your mouth, maybe that's important to you, but I would say it's probably not one of the vital things. Another one would be the time in the waiting room. Do you like a short wait? Maybe so, but is that vital? Probably not. Doing good work is much greater than that. Maybe somebody that's close to your house. I drove all the way to Columbus. It was worth it. So having someone really close isn't really vital, maybe important, but not vital. Some of these commitments, my point is, are greater and of greater importance and even vital, whereas others may not be so. Not just with a dentist, but with lots of things. There are a lot of core commitments that you need from things like your doctor or your vehicle or your job. And then there are extras that are good or even important, but maybe not as vital. Like I said, it's important that your vehicle has air conditioner, but it's not as vital as the fact that when you press the pedal to go, your vehicle moves forward. Some things can be of great importance, but not be as vital as others. And the reason I say that is that the Christian life is no different. This book, your Bible, right, has a lot of things in it, a lot of commitments when it talks about the Christian life, has much to say about what it means to daily walk with Jesus and to honor God. It's full of the good. It's full of the important, even the extremely important. But there are some core commitments that are even more vital than the extremely important for your daily strivings to walk with Jesus. And those are the commitments that we will look at in this eight-part series. And today, we're starting with the most vital of all of them before any of the others can even be considered, and that is 
the work of Jesus, and because of his work, your existence, please hear this, isn't hopeless, but is instead full of hope. And the reason why is because God is two things. He is just, and he is a justifier, the justifier. And we're going to talk about that today. When I was in seminary, I had a professor named Dr. Tom Schreiner, and he is brilliant. I would argue one of the most brilliant New Testament scholars in the world right now. And I got to learn from him, which is pretty amazing. I'm not a good reflection of how much he knows, by the way. But he said something very peculiar when he was teaching us through the New Testament. He came to Romans. Specifically, he came to Romans chapter 3, and he said this. He said, guys, this I would argue. Remember who's arguing it? Guys, this I would argue is the most important passage in your Bibles. That's pretty high praise from a pretty smart guy. And so I would suggest it's pretty vital for us to understand it. So today, as we read it, keep that little nugget back there in the back of your mind, how vital, how important, valuable this passage is. I think that we're going to see some pretty amazing things in it, okay? Romans chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 20, and we'll work through verse 26. <coughs> it says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The book of Romans was written to Christians in Rome around A.D. 57. So you do the math, this is a couple of decades after Jesus has ascended and he's left the earth. It's written to Gentile and Jewish Christians in these churches, and you see evidence of that. Gentile just meaning non-Jewish, and then you have Jewish, and Jewish people had a deep heritage of following Yahweh, right? You read the Old Testament, that's to them. But Gentiles were now becoming God-fearers and finding faith in Christ Jesus. You read about that in the book of Acts. And so the book of Romans was written to both Jewish and Gentile Christians, and you see evidences of this interwoven throughout this situational letter called Romans. Part of that is when he addresses Gentiles, clearly, when he talks about a king that is dying, and he says the gospel is, is uh, shameful. He says it's shameful to those who don't believe, but it is the power of God to those that do. That's why he says in uh, Romans 1, 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? Because to Gentiles, it'd be shameful that the big core of your faith, he died? What a shame. Paul says, no, 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 that's the glory part. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. He addresses Gentiles in some ways. He addresses Jews in many others. He talks about the, the sacrificial system, and then in Romans chapter 12, we eventually get there. He talks about you are not to bring sacrifices, but instead you're to be a living sacrifice, clearly addressing and breaking down a system there. He talks about circumcision and addresses Abraham, where they would say, well, what about Abraham? And Paul says, no, 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 it's about faith. 
He addresses position of privilege and instead says, no, 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 there's no distinction. That's what all of chapter 2 is about. Jews, Gentiles, you're the same. You sin. That's what he saw in Romans 3.23 just a second ago. He talks about in chapter 5 that there's death that is received through Adam, but life that is received in the name of Jesus. And so I just say that to say there's lots of things that are targeted here to Jews and to Gentiles, all centered on the main thing, which is that there is no distinction. We all fall short of the glory of God and can find purchase and redemption in the name of his son, Jesus. So in light of that, as we come to Romans 3, 21 through 26, I got a couple things that I want to leave you with. I think there's going to be a lot that we can take notes on here, but I'm going to narrow it down to just a couple of things. Number one is that there is both good news and bad news. The bad news and the good news. This passage in particular comes on the heels of a lengthy explanation of the moral bankruptcy in humanity that as a result of sin, people, all people, when we enter into this world, we come not in good standing with God, but instead with a holy God, we come condemned in our standing before a holy God. The reason why is because, guys, our sin, and even dating back to our forefather, Adam and Eve, sin has deadly consequences. Separation, a broken relationship with God. That was, in fact, the first consequence of sin. We, we talk a lot about the snake. We'll have the punishment, and there's childbearing. That it was going to be pain and, pain and childbearing for you, even. There's going to be hard work for you, Adam. We focus on that. But the better part, in my opinion, is what comes right after it. Or maybe a part that is neglected. Maybe not better, but just neglected. And that is that right after that, you know what God tells Adam and Eve? Get lost. You're banished from the garden, which was the presence of God. You got to get out of here. In fact, he didn't just kick him out of the garden. He put an amazing celestial creature at the entrance with a flaming sword and said, if they come close, tell them to get lost. Because people could no longer be in fellowship and intimacy with a holy God. Separated is the word. Separated from God. That was the very first consequence. And it brought the entire world under God's just judgment. And we enter into the same judgment when we're born into this world. But it's also the final consequence of sin. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 <clears throat> says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. The consequences of the fall are eternal, but they're also present. You can see the fall all around us. Consider the fact that there is currently a war being waged in the name of a wicked desire in Europe. Past and present wars, wars that are still happening. There have been attempts of genocide of ethnic and religious groups, Holocaust, brutal enslavement of other people created in the image of God. By the way, that also is still happening in China right now. Children starve to death daily. Refugees as a result of violence or danger are told to get lost Even the unspeakable tragedies committed against the natives that occupied this land that we reside in that you and I proudly call free. Evidences of the fall preceded even our residents on this land. Statisticians approximate an extremely conservative guess of since 1973, well over 60 million lives of unborn human beings have been terminated, executed. And that's only one country on the globe. Guys, there have been dozens. I mean, there's been enough evil in our day and in days past to justify dozens 
of Noah-esque floods of a world that rejects its maker. Hasn't there? Hasn't there? And we may be tempted to say, you know, those are pretty extreme examples. Yeah, but I never, but I'm, you know. <laughs> Consider even your own daily rejections of God's way for your way. What is the difference between the initial sin of Adam and Eve and what you and I do every single day? And not just that. Multiply that rejection this internal violation of a moral code that is really more of a relational rejection of a holy God and Father, multiply what you experience every day in that way times seven billion. That is the nature of the rejection that God experiences every day. Is he justified to just end it all? You could certainly say so. Because sin has devastating consequences. Guys, aside from Christ, there is simply no human being in this room or in any room in this time or in any time that has deserved anything less than separation from a holy God. And that's why Paul says to two people groups, Jews and Gentiles, that by the way, like to play the yeah, but what about game. You know what he says to them? Without excuse in Romans 1. Without excuse. Romans 2, he says, no partiality. You're both in the same boat. You're not different. You're the same. But that gives such weight to verse 21. Look at the beginning of it. Two simple words. But now. Just hold on. Just, just let that wash over you. The state of man, the no partiality, the condemnation. But Paul mentions two amazing words. But now. It goes on. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It's a change in the course of history. It falls after verse 20, which says, for by works of the law, that's why he says apart from the law, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. That means made right, declared righteous. By the law, no human being will be made right, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So he's saying, for all time, all, all that the law has done, the Old Testament, all it's done is exposed that you can't do it. That you can't do it. You can't be justified by just trying. Sounds like bad news, does it not? Everything that I've said to this point sounds like some bad news. No justification by works. To be declared right, it's not happening. The crux of this passage is the great dilemma of man, and that's that we stand condemned unjustified, not justified but now. And what Paul's about to say is, because of the dawn of a new salvation in the name of Jesus, because of the dawn of a new day, things are different. Verse 22 says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, that's Jews and Gentiles, for there is no distinction. There it is once more. He uses the phrase, the righteousness of God, which is kind of a weird phrase. To me, it just says uh, that God is amazing, the righteousness of God, the fact that God is amazing. But really, there's more being said in that phrase than just that God is amazing. Literally, what Paul is saying with the righteousness of God is that that is a phrase used in a couple of different lights, but it's the moral goodness, better word, the moral rightness of God. This moral rightness is attained, he's saying, not by doing this adherence to the law, but instead, now he says, through faith in Christ. For who? 
for all who believe. You see, the law was a devastating exposure of broken morality and broken relationship. No distinction. That's, by the way, why. You may have read verse 23, Romans 3, 23, and memorized that verse, for all of sin falls short of the glory of God. But do you see how in its context it really fits? He's saying Jews, Gentiles, black, white, man, woman, old, young, doesn't matter. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You guys are no different than you guys. But now, he goes on, verse 24, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, that means declared right, by his grace as a gift. Remember, the whole point of everything that Paul's written to this point is that all cannot be justified by work cannot be justified by doing good things. Therefore, we, if we're going to be justified at all, we must be justified by some other means, right? Right? We must be just, if we're going to be declared right before a holy God, we can't earn it. Therefore, it must be a gift. It must be grace. <clears throat> and guys, this is the big difference between Christianity, and I'm going to say other world religions, but what I really mean by that is that all other world views this is the big difference. What we see here is a beginning justified versus an end justified. I use an analogy for that. Everyone in this room, I think, has gone through some sort of schooling, whether it be kindergarten, first grade, 12th grade, 10th grade, college, law school, whatever it may be. And they all have the same thing in common, and that is that you put in the work for a year or for nine months or however long, and then at the end, you get your grades, right? And whether or not you get the degree, whether or not you go to the next grade, whether or not you get the diploma, whether or not you get the certification, whatever it may be, it depends not on what you did at the beginning of the semester, the beginning of the year, what does it depend on? The grade at the end. And the world, and I'm not just talking about other religions, that's certainly true, but I mean the world view of the world is not what happens at the beginning, but it's what happens at the end. And that is, we'll see. Will I get the passing grade? Well, if I've done enough good, you see what I'm saying? Will I get the passing grade at the end if I've done enough good or if I adhere to the Quran or if I adhere to the Torah? If I've left the world better than I've found it? If I've treated people right? You see how they all have something in common and that is that based on your conduct at the end of the day, what's the grade say? That determines whether or not you're justified. Christianity is the opposite of that. You hear that? It is not based on what you've done and done and done and done and get to the pearly gates and we'll see. No, by God's grace, no. Because if that was the case, there'd be one destiny for every person that ever got there and it would not be glory. No, Christianity is the opposite of that. The justification, the being declared right for us, does not happen at the end of our lives. It happens when we find new life in the name of Jesus. It's not earnings, and we'll see. It's grace at what we've seen. A gift, Paul calls it. And I think that, I'm not going to overcomplicate it. How do we apply that? Every day, every moment of every day, 
we must praise God. I cannot overcomplicate that. That has impact in your classroom. That has impact in your workplace. That has impact when you have screamed at your kid and they look at you like, Mommy, were you supposed to scream like that? And they're cowering before you. That has impact when you say, Baby, Mommy shouldn't have done that. And I need Jesus just like you do. That has impact at the end of the day when you put your head on your pillow and you're ashamed because you've gone prayerless. You've gone Bible-less. And there's been no evidence in your life that day that you're somebody who's a follower of Jesus that makes you any different from anybody else. Guys, on those days, I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded that I'm not justified at the end of my life, but at the beginning of my new life. Do you see, to use Paul's words, do you see the gift of that? You know, we, we come in on Sundays, a guy like me preaches, he sings some songs, you've done this for decades maybe. But do you see how that message, it's not just that it shouldn't, it can't, it can't be something that you only are cognizant of Sundays of every week. That is the very lifeblood of your life. And if it isn't, what a despairing existence. Again, I, I'm not going to overcomplicate it. The application of this point, there's bad news and good news, is that church, we serve an amazing God. Period. Praise God for that. The second thing that I want to unpack here, and that's what I'm going to call the justice problem. Put problem in quotes, but it kind of is a problem. It's a dilemma, maybe is a better word for it. <clears throat> I heard a great preacher one time say, <clears throat> pause for dramatic effect as I take a sip of water because, you know, it's that time. It's either that or a hack all over the Randall family here in front of me. Heard a great preacher one time say that man's biggest problem, this is going to sound weird, that man's biggest problem isn't sin, but is rather that God is just. Sounds weird, right? That man's biggest problem isn't sin, but rather is that God is just. I was watching a movie this week for the second time. It's a movie that I've already seen, but it's The Batman. How many Batman movies are they going to make before they're satisfied, by the way? More, I hope, because I love Batman. It's a pretty great movie, The Batman. It's starring Robert Pattinson. It's really solid, and I enjoyed watching the movie the first time. I enjoyed watching it the second time. But there's a part in the movie that kind of came to mind while I was getting this message together, and that's that there's a scene where a guy named Carmine Falcone, who's a uh, kind of like a mob boss, and he's really invincible because he has everybody. He has everybody. He's got everybody under his thumb, right? And so they finally uh, arrest him. If you haven't seen it, that's actually in the comics. You don't do, I don't read comics either, but I know that it's fat. Forget about it. We'll keep going. Um, they arrest him, and they're like, we finally got the bad guy. And then he doesn't even look alarmed. He's just like, you know, walking out like this, and like nothing's even happening. And they're kind of, why are you, why are you acting that way? And he says, you think you got me? He says, I've got everybody. He's not alarmed. All the bad things he's done, he's not even concerned about it because he knows that he's going to stand in front of a corrupt judge in front of a corrupt DA. He's not worried about it. 
Despite all the sins, despite all the bad things it has done, it doesn't matter because he had the DA and the judge under his thumb. The reason I say that is that crime is irrelevant with a corrupt judge. Our big problem, you could say it's sin, but our big problem is that we have a good judge, a just judge who always gets the sentence right. Crime would be no big deal under a corrupt judge, but we don't just commit crime every day in celestial fashion against a holy God. We commit it against a God that gets the judgment correct every single time. In church, for you and me, that's a problem. That's a problem because it comes with eternal consequences. The problem of your sin is only a problem with the judge is just, which is what Paul, what makes Paul, what, what has Paul said in verses 23 and 24 so shocking. With that in mind, the justice must be done. God's a good judge. Now look at verses 23 and the first part of 24 again. For all has sinned all, and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and, listen to this, how crazy, and are justified. Pause. What? Is God just? Yes. Is man evil? Fall short of the glory of God? Yes. God justifies them? Does that sound like a good judge? Or a corrupt judge, does it not? based on the example that we just listened to. But it says, are justified by his grace as a gift. But listen, how can one justify? How can one bring justice that brings justifying work for the wicked? Guys, that should bother you. It'd bother you in the real world. That would bother you. Justice is important to us. Real justice is important to us. On May 24th, of this year, just a few weeks ago, 18-year-old Salvador Ramos entered Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, and fatally shot 19 children and two teachers and wounded 17 others. Earlier that day, he had shot his grandmother in the face. His sentencing is a ways away, and we hope that he receives strict justice, do we not? Now imagine for a moment that the time finally comes for a sentencing and our nation's blood boils in intermingled sadness and anger and the judge takes the stand and he says, it's clear that you've done a horrible thing, but I think that you've learned your lesson, so I'm going to let you go. And he takes the gavel. What would our response be to that? Gladness? No. We'd be outraged. We should be outraged. What rises in our hearts when we consider such a scenario is that emotion of outrage at injustice. Because injustice is wrong. We know the verdict is not just, and it feels intolerable to us. Evil <coughs> requires an equivalent punishment. We inherited, by the way, that sense of justice, not by happenstance, not by coincidence. You know why we received that sense of justice? Because our Creator gave it to us. And as hard of a pill as it is to swallow, without God making a radical way, verses 23 and 24 read as outrageous, injustice. How can Paul go from preaching the universal guilt of man for two and a half chapters to now the potential rescue for all of them by a perfect judge who gets the ruling right every time? Justified by his grace. 
That sounds radical. It should sound outrageous unless something gives here. They would know that it sounded outrageous. In Isaiah 55, 7, it says, Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on them. Listen, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Pardon the wicked doer, the evildoer? Proverbs 24, 24 says, Whoever tells the guilty, listen, the judge, Whoever tells the guilty, you are innocent, peoples will curse him, and nations will denounce him, because that's corrupt, is what that means. Proverbs 20, uh, 17, 15 says, He who justifies, that means declared right, the wicked, and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. That's the strongest Hebrew way of saying they are horrible to the Lord, a corrupt judge. Micah seven nineteen says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot, meaning destroy the sin. Tread our iniquities underfoot, the criminal. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And what we read, we read that and we say, oh, cast our iniquities underfoot. Take our, our iniquities and cast them into the sea. We read that and we say, yeah, awesome, good news. Sin destroyed, us pardoned. We say, yes. But guys, God cannot do that and still be just. The same way that you were outraged just a moment ago when I used that example. That's corruption. It's not justice. But this is where the gospel enters. In fact, there's a preview of it. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, God is talking to Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses is about to go down that mountain and see the corruption of people. He's now encountering a holy God. Talk about a juxtaposition. In chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, it says this, The Lord passed, <coughs> passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, listen, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving, listen, iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? Here's what that says, really simply. God forgives every type and kind of sin. Praise God. But it also says God will punish every type and kind of sin. How can he do both? Because the sin did not go unpunished. You simply do not receive the punishment. That's why it goes on in verses 24 and 25. Justified by his grace is a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There it is. The purchase. Redemption means to buy. To buy a prisoner. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom... God put forward as a propitiation, yours might say atoning sacrifice or expiation, we'll talk about that in a second, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Use the word redemption. I use the word ransom. It's the same principle and it's buying a prisoner how can we be justified by grace as a gift? How can the wicked, the iniquity doer, be justified, declared right before a holy God? 
because we've been redeemed. Because the price was paid. You know, the thing when we enter into this world looming over our heads as a result of sin is not the threat of hell. The thing looming over our heads when we enter this world is that wrath is coming. A guy named John Stott, who's a brilliant mind, he said, God himself gave himself to save you and I from himself. That God himself gave himself to save you and I from himself. Romans 1.18 talks a little bit about wrath, just a couple of chapters prior. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, don't miss all, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is the reason that God created the sacrificial system that we read, and it's kind of boring in the book of Leviticus or Numbers. We read, and it's like, this is a snooze fest. Can we get to the New Testament? But that sacrificial system is important. God created it because of the wrath of himself. This passage in Romans 3, 25 says that God put him forward, Jesus, as a propitiation. As I said, your translation may say expiation or atoning sacrifice. It's sort of kind of in the same realm of definition, but what is important about the word propitiation is that it means it is one that turns wrath into favor. A propitiatory sacrifice turns wrath into favor. And that was the meaning of the sacrificial system. The Greek word for propitiation there is a word called hilasterion means an atoning victim. This is the same thing in Hebrew that they put on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat, it's the same word, kind of transliterated a little bit differently. The mercy seat, the place where the blood was poured out to turn God's wrath toward his people into God's favor toward his people. Blood must be poured out. I know that sounds weird, but this is why. Leviticus 17, 11 says, for the life of the flesh of a creature is in its blood and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement payment for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life here's what that means wrath can only be turned into favor because another life took the wrath so that you could take the favor hello does that sound like the good news of the gospel it's life for life Jesus is not just down on the cross because he's a nice guy. He did it because he's a loving savior, a life for a life. His blood was poured out that yours wouldn't have to be. The good news of the gospel, if we receive by faith, which is what he says in verse 25, who moved it forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What do we bring to the table? What must we do in order to receive that? Belief. God, I confess that I'm a sinner, that I'm the one who falls short of the glory of God, that the only way that I can be made right in your sight is if you do something amazing and put it onto me. You don't have to pray a big fancy sinner's prayer to give your life to Jesus. You must believe that you fall short of God's glory, that you stand condemned and separated from God, and you asked for that atoning sacrifice to be effectual for you. That is the core of the gospel. 
the justice problem. Our problem is that God is holy and must pour wrath out on all sin, and we cannot be exempt and pardoned by him and him still be just. But our solution is a gracious God who still punished sin. And that's why I love that passage in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, because what it says, I'll read it again, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness. Those are all the attributes of God that we love to talk about. But he can't just be those things and still be God. That's why it goes on to say, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear thee guilty. How do we apply that? Again, this is just not a complicated message, church. The application is very simple. Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that he just loves you, man? So much that he would die for you. There's more to life than having a good job, raising some good kids, having a good retirement plan, and then dying. There's simply more to life than that. God created you for more than that. If that was all there is, why would he send his son Jesus to die for you? Just so you could have that? No. The application is so simple. Church, if we believe, if we really believe that Jesus became death so that we could experience life not a day would go by that we do not madly express our affection for a God that has madly given us his affection. I don't know how to say that, that it would get through. I know that you've heard that countless times, many of you, most of you. I don't know how to say that, and make it get through. But so many people come to church, we do the church thing, and we harden and harden and harden our hearts and just do a religious thing. Instead of walking away from this gathering in tears because of the love of God who went so many lengths to bring back that which didn't deserve it. We don't deserve the favor. We deserve the wrath. But by the love and grace of our God, he has taken the wrath that we may take the favor. Praise God. Hallelujah. The legality of the sacrifice of Jesus matters. That God is both just and he's a justifier. Only an amazing, holy, just, loving, justifying God could do that. And he wants you to know him, to know that, to know him. It goes on in verse 25 and says that all of that was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Sins for a long, long time. Before Jesus went to Calvary, there were people and people and people and armies and nations and people groups and tongues and tribes, thousands and millions of people that walked this earth before Jesus went to Calvary. You know what God didn't do? Flood them every time they sinned. Pour out wrath on them every time they sinned. He didn't do that because in his divine godly forbearance waiting 
He looked forward to the time that his justice and mercy would collide. It says it was to show God's righteousness. What that means is it was to show God's rightness, his justice, that he gets it right. That's a common question. How were Moses and David and Ruth and Rahab and Samson saved? It's a simple answer. They were saved the same way that you were, by the blood of Jesus, because they simply didn't know it yet. They believed by faith that God would do something at some point to solve the great dilemma of his justice and his justifying grace. You see, God wasn't unrighteous when he passed over former sins, seemingly ignored them, and this is why he did it that way. Verse 26, beautiful. It was to show his righteousness. His rightness, right, he gets it right at the present time, Paul's saying. So all those things back then, they happened so that today we could see the present time so that he might be, here it is, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God did it that way then to show who he is today. One more thing you'll see on the screen behind me. And that's that this is so important. God didn't overcome his wrath by means of his love. He punished sin and saved sinners by means of his wrath and his love. To come to his wrath and say, ah, don't worry about it. I don't have to do that. I'll overcome that part of me and just love. He'd be corrupt to do so. He didn't overcome his wrath by means of his love. He poured out both. And that's the intersection of God being just and the justifier. That's the intersection of Calvary. To go back to my professor's statement, why is this perhaps the most important passage in your Bibles? Because it is the beautiful collision of the love and justice of God for the praise of the one who restored a forever severed, broken relationship. Those two words, just and justifier, moment of transparency here. Those two words changed everything for me. When my professor said that, I thought that he was crazy. Like, dude, you got the cross, you got creation, you got the fall, you got a lot of really important things. And they are extremely important, even vital. But this little section, these six verses here, they put in perfect summary and context what is the great impossible equation of humanity. We cannot earn his favor, and he cannot pardon sin. How can they meet? Only because he punished sin that we may receive his favor. You may have come here today not knowing what you were going to hear. I didn't tell you guys a lot about what this series was going to be. You may be in here today and you're here because you do the church thing. And you may have heard of a lot of sermons, maybe on this subject matter, I don't know. But to me, there was a time that came when this trend
transaction, please listen, when this transaction finally clicked for me, I could say just like the rest of them that was raised in VBS and taught a Sunday school class, I could say all of those things. Why did Jesus die on the cross? To save me from my sins. What is sin? It's disobeying God, doing the wrong thing. But there's something about this passage that intersects the two most profound characteristics of our God, that he's just and that he loves us. Today, if you come in here and this is clicking for you for the first time ever, praise God for that for one thing. But also, you may be feeling some conviction over this because you've done the church thing and you do the tradition thing and you bring your Bible because that's what you do and you go to Sunday school because that's what you do and you sing the songs and you listen to the sermon because that's what you do. But you've never come to a point in your life where you've told God, Father, I know that I'm a sinner, that I'm separated from you for all of eternity. I know I can't earn that way back. I know that I have no chance apart from you doing a work in my life. But I believe that by the work of Jesus, you want to buy me, redeem me, restore me, and save me. Lord, I give my life to you. If that's you today, you have nothing to be ashamed of. Please go public about it. God would want no other thing than for you to praise him with your church because of the work of the gospel in your heart. Others of you may be here today and have been walking with Jesus for some time, but maybe this aspect of who God is doesn't intersect a whole lot in your heart. I think there's part of here, I call this series Core Commitments, because this truth is something that we must be reminded of daily, regularly, most importantly, when we sin. Your sin does not get you in God's doghouse. Your sin is not leaving you in the balance that the end of life, we'll see. See what the grade is, do I pass? You need to be reminded that your eternity was stamped, not in the future. Let's see what happens. Your eternity was stamped when you placed your faith in God's Son, Jesus the Christ. You need to be reminded of that today.